You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. We're going to be reading verses 27 through 36. It's page 870 in the Bibles provided for you. Luke 11, beginning in verse 27. As he said these things, be earnest in praying for the Holy Spirit. The devil is stronger than you are, and I am stronger than the devil. Trust in me. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Let's pray one more time. Then we'll get going. Father, my Father in heaven, you know how I have wrestled with you in this passage throughout this week. And I pray now for my sake and for the sake of your people that you would, by your grace, allow me to prevail. I ask, Father, that you would be gracious to us, that you would come and make your face to shine upon us so that we would not only hear your word, but keep it. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember uh, one of the first sermons that I ever preached was out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where Paul says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you, the Thessalonian church plant, received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. And I remember talking about the privilege of having the words of God and hearing the words of God. And going back to an Old Testament passage in uh, the book of the prophet Amos, where he is saying in his own days and in the days coming, there's coming a famine. Not a famine of food or water, but a famine of hearing the words of God. And that is a great problem. 
It's a great problem here in the northeastern part of the United States, and it's a great problem all over the world, that there is not more unfolding of the Bible for people. But that's not the problem that Jesus is dealing with in our text. You see, there's a deeper problem. Not just that there is, in some places, a famine of the hearing of the Word of God, but specifically in our passage, and for many of us, and especially coming from a place like I do in the South, everybody's hearing the Word of God, and very few people are keeping it. And that is a deeper problem. And that's what Jesus is addressing for us in our passage. It is a pervasive reality in the Bible that people can be self-deceived into thinking that they are related to Jesus because they're familiar with Jesus, because they sit under the hearing of His words, but prove themselves to be false because they do not keep the words that they hear from Christ. It's so pervasive that Jesus devotes an entire parable to this. In Matthew chapter 13, He says here then the parable of the sower, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart, and we need to hear that. But there is an evil one who, when the word of God is heard, comes along and will snatch it out of our hearts so that we do not keep it. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground... This is the one who hears the word. He hears the word, and immediately he receives it with joy, but he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So he can hear the word, and then tribulation or persecution will arise over the hearing of the word, and he will fall away. He won't keep the word anymore. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. Again, hearing the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So you hear the word and it can get choked out by simply being busy and getting caught up with everyday life. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit, and yields in one case a hundredfold, and in another sixty, and in another thirty. So there are many things right now that are vying for your attention to keep you from not just hearing the word, but having heard it, not keeping it. So, comes the theme of what I want to say. Namely, as you can see there, take care to keep, to keep God's Word. In our verses, I think Jesus gives us three reasons to take care to keep the Word of God. We see the first in verses 27 through 28. And I would say it is this. Take care to keep the Word of God because the state or condition of true Blessedness is attached to it. It's attached not just to hearing the Word, but to keeping the Word. He says, beginning in verse 27, As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. He said, Blessed rather are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. And so I think he's doing two things here. He is reorienting a cultural convention of his day of what, what is true blessedness. And he's also going to then say that keeping God's Word, albeit a blessed thing, is a costly thing that you will never regret. You will never regret. So, let's see the first one of those. 
the woman in the crowd seeks to give Jesus a compliment. It's an honest attempt on her part. Your mother has been blessed by God because she bore you and nursed you. And so it's a roundabout way of honoring Jesus' mother and giving Jesus honor. But Jesus corrects her. He says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So true blessedness is mainly operative on the vertical axis and not on the horizontal. It has nothing to do with the first birth and everything to do with the second birth. It has nothing to do with who you know, but whether you are known by God. And so Jesus is saying that Mary's blessedness is tied to nothing but her personal, personal obedience to the Word of God. Her beatitude, her happiness, her blessedness is not that she knows Jesus or even that she gave birth to Jesus, but that she believed the Word of God about Jesus. We see that all the way back at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 45, where Elizabeth says to her, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So true blessedness is not just hearing the Word, but keeping the Word, believing the Word. And so Jesus redefines it. But the second thing I think we see is that this goes hand in hand with it being a beatitude, right? That keeping God's Word is a presently costly thing that you will never regret, either now and, and certainly not in heaven. So this word from Jesus, again, it's a beatitude that's kind of divorced from the beatitudes in Luke chapter 6. Now, beatitude, what it does is it contrasts what is fashionable with God with what is fashionable in the world. And in the process, it gives an eternal perspective to living the Christian life in the present world. So, for example, Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. So he lifts up, he lifts up his eyes on his disciples, and he says, The world says... You are blessed if you are rich now, but I say to you, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The world says, you're blessed to be full now, but I say to you, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. The world says, you are blessed to laugh now, and I say to you, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. The world says, you are blessed when people speak well of you now. And I say, even when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man, you are blessed. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great. In heaven. And so when Jesus now in our passage says, Blessed, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it, it is understood that it is not without cost. It is a costly thing to keep the words of God, and you'll never regret it. Keeping the word of God may cost you your job because you keep Colossians 4.1 and will not act unjustly. Keeping the Word of God may cost you your popularity because there just aren't many people on the difficult way to the narrow gate that leads to life. Matthew 7.14 Keeping the Word of God may cost you your boyfriend or your girlfriend because you will not compromise your purity 1 Thessalonians 3, 4, 5, and 7. Keeping the Word of God may cost you your family and possessions because you have loved Christ more than them. Luke 14, 26, 27, and 33. So keeping the Word of God is 
no doubt, costly, and you'll never regret it. There is an infinitely greater gain to keeping the Word of God. The one who keeps the Word of God is blessed, Jesus says. And everything that applies to the disciples in Luke chapter 6, when he's unfolding those Beatitudes, applies here as well. Your commendation then is not from men, it's from God. God's kingdom is your home. Present and eternal satisfaction, everlasting happiness, never-ending reward, ever-increasing joy in heaven, joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. The sight of God in heaven is yours when you keep the Word of God now. And this is the tip of the iceberg of the blessedness for those who keep God's Word. And so we need to take care to keep God's Word because, because it is literally infinitely more blessed to keep God's Word than not to. Second truth. We need to take care to keep God's Word because it is distinctive of a true disciple. It's distinctive of a true disciple. If I could give a, a subtitle to it, it would be that it is very, very dangerous to be one who thinks that they are a disciple because they sit under the hearing of the Word of Christ and will not keep the Word. He's self-deceived, and that is a very dangerous place to be. But keeping the Word, keeping the Word, is the mark of a true disciple. It seems the constant business of Jesus to be separating wheat from chaff, true disciples from false disciples, Peter's from Judas. In our passage, we see, again, picking up in verse 29, that the crowds now are increasing. The fame and the popularity of Jesus is booming and the crowds are coming in. And they are, we guess, an interested people. They are what we would call seekers. They're religious people. They're hearers of the Word. And yet, we, we need to see this, and yet the sight of them causes Jesus to indict them. Let me ask you a question. If people all of a sudden began to flock into Redemption Hill Church or Christ Community Church, would the first words of the first sermon on that Sunday off of our lips be, this generation is an evil generation? Why does Jesus talk like that? Because unlike us, Jesus will not pamper the presumptions of anyone who thinks they are saved but will not keep His Word. Jesus has made this distinction already in His Gospel, in fact. Luke chapter 6, verses 46 to 49, I'll read them to you. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? There is people who are calling Jesus Lord. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. So the judgment's going to come and that person will stand in the judgment because he's been a keeper of the words of Christ. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation when the stream broke against it immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great you hear the words of Christ and you do not do them you will not stand in the judgment it's just another way of saying what we're so afraid of saying very often which is you're going to be in hell So, 
Keeping Jesus' words is a distinctive of true disciples, but Jesus is addressing those in these verses, four verses, verses 29 to 32, who hear and do not do. And he says it because their nature is evil. So what I want to do is I want to unfold what he says. So let me give you the sum of the parts, and then we'll focus in on how the sign of Jonah plays into what Jesus is saying. First, let's, let's actually read verses 29 to 32 again, and then we'll do that. Again, the crowds are increasing. He began to say, this generation is an evil generation. That's what Jesus says. It seeks for a sign. No sign will be given to it but one, the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And so we haven't left verse 28. Blessed are those, rather, who hear the word of God and keep it. The Queen of Sheba, she came all the way across the world to hear the words of God through Solomon. The pagans in Nineveh a city that is probably comparable to our own. They repented at the preaching of God's messenger. We haven't left that. So at root level, here's some of the parts of what Jesus is saying. At root level, their nature is evil. Therefore, they seek a sign. They want proof. Have you heard that? I'm not going to believe that unless I have proof. That should be familiar to us. Therefore, they seek a sign. They want proof. And in doing so, they put off faith and undermine the sufficiency of Christ's words to save. All you need are my words. And you're seeking signs. You see, all the signs that God and Christ are obliged to perform in the Bible are support for the message and the words and the preaching of the gospel. All of them. Signs play a supporting role to words. The word of God and of Christ is all a sinner needs to be saved. And that is why Paul says in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. And this requires the grace of God, which every true disciple has received. So the whole issue for Jesus is, you don't need signs, you have my word. You seek for signs because you do not want to believe my word. You don't want to believe my word because you are evil. Now, how does Jesus prove that the real issue is not we need more signs, but we need a new heart that is content to believe your word? He gives them a sign. And it's not just any sign. It's the sign that puts an end to all signs. The sign, he says, of Jonah. Verses 29 to 30. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. We might, we might be expecting him to say, you don't get any more signs. That's not what he says. He says, you're not going to get any more signs except one, the sign of Jonah. <clears throat> For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, what is that? What is the sign of Jonah? And most importantly, how is Jesus using this to expose the fundamental issue of evil hearts that will not believe his word? Most people tend to think that the sign of Jonah is the resurrection of Christ. And they get that from Matthew 12, verse 40. It's something that Luke does not have in this passage, but Matthew's parallel account has. And I'm thankful for it, because I think they're right. This is what Matthew says Matthew 12, verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man 
be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so I tend to agree that the sign of Jonah is the resurrection of Jesus. He's going to be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. With one addition. I think it also includes the death of Christ. If the Son of Man is only in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, it is because He has been raised from the dead. Right? He's been in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, and then He's no longer in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. It's because He's been raised from the dead. But, if the Son of Man was in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, how did He get there? He died. He died. He was crucified. So in my estimation, the sign of Jonah as it relates to Jesus is nothing less than an abbreviated version of the entirety of the gospel that says Jesus is the Messiah upon whom you need to believe. And that's everything that he's preaching. The sign is God sending his son into the world to live a sinless life and to die on a cross as a substitute for sinners, and to be buried and to be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, and then on the third day to be raised bodily from the dead. So that what is impossible with man, that we should be saved, is possible with God. In Christ. Now, how does that expose evil hearts that will not believe the, God, the word of Christ? Here's my answer. I get it from Jesus in Luke 16, verse 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, what's the context of that? The context of that is probably a parable Luke 16, begins in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died. And was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, okay, consolation then. I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If they receive this sign of the resurrection, then they'll believe. Then they'll repent. What does he say? He said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is J.C. Ryle on that passage. The principle laid down in these words is of deep importance. The scriptures contain all that we need to know in order to be saved, and a messenger from the world beyond the grave could add nothing to them. It is not more evidence that is wanted in order to make men repent, but more, but more heart and will to make use of what they already know. This wretched waiting for something which we have not and neglect of what we have is the ruin of thousands of souls. Faith 
Simple faith in the Scriptures which we already possess is the first thing needful to salvation. The man who has the Bible and can read it and yet waits for more evidence before he becomes a decided Christian is deceiving himself except he awakens from his delusion. He will die in his sins. And at this point, Jesus increases the condemnation by saying, you Israelites who have had so much light are not believing and repenting at my word and I am the Messiah. But, but a Gentile queen came from the ends of the earth to hear the word of a little bitty guy named Solomon. Gentile pagans in a city called Nineveh they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. And you're not coming to me. You're not receiving my wisdom. You're not keeping my word. You're not repenting. The problem is not that they need more evidence or more signs or more proof, but they need new hearts that love and believe and keep the word of Christ. And so again, we must take care to keep God's word because by God's grace, it distinguishes you as a true disciple of Jesus. Third truth, take care to keep God's words because one of the great aims of the Christian life is a missional holiness. Verses 33 to 36, let's read them together. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Parables are tough sometimes. This one is no exception. I think Jesus is saying, aim to keep God's word. Adjust your life by the light of my word, which is another way of saying aim at biblical, keep my word, biblical holiness. Keep my word. And there are three contextual reasons that I'm leaning this way. So here's the first one. The only other time this parable is used is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. And in that sermon, the thread running through it is Jesus identifying the distinguishing marks of his people, the lives of true disciples. And Luke reserves it for right here. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Second thing, I think he's saying aim to keep God's word, adjust your life by the light of my word, because there is a verse unique to Luke. It's nowhere else in the Bible. It's only here in Luke. And it's verse 36. Luke 11, 36. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light, which I think is just another way of saying if you keep everything you hear, so light is coming in and it's getting into your heart and it's transforming you. You're not just hearing and not keeping so that it becomes darkness in you, but you're hearing it. You're taking in light and then you are keeping it. You're pushing out dark. You will be wholly bright. So if you keep everything you hear, you will be radiant 
in holiness. And he's saying, aim to be as bright as you possibly can be. Third thing. Our own context needs to drive how we read this parable. True blessedness, he's already said, is the state of those who keep the word. Verses 27 and 28. Condemnation is the sentence of those who hear and do not keep the word. Verses 29 through 32. And so here I think Jesus is saying in a parable the same things with some nuances. Aim to do all that you hear. Aim to keep God's word. Aim at the radiance of biblical holiness. So how does the parable say that? Look with me, verses 34 through 36. He says, your eye is the lamp of your body. So there is a, a governor to the use of your body. We, so, we over-spiritualize worship sometimes. We worship with our bodies. Our bodies are living sacrifices unto God. So there's a governor to the use of the body. If the eye is healthy, light enters and we're able to see. And the ability to see is critical for the proper use of the body. We're not stumbling over things. We see how we need to do things with our body because we can see. We walk by the light. But if the eye is bad, and, and what's interesting is that the, the, the Greek word here for bad is the same word that he uses in verse 29 when he says, this generation is an evil generation. A bad one. Same word here. If the eye is bad, the light is snuffed out and the use of the body is left in darkness so that we stumble about. So if you have a healthy heart, that not only hears, but keeps the Word of God, the use of your body, your lives will be transformed. The governor, I think, as we read Scripture, the governor of the body that functions like an eye is the heart. So as the heart hears the Word and keeps the Word, that is evident in the use of our bodies. Our lives are transformed. We hear the Word of Christ and we are conformed to the image of Christ. So, if we're hearing the word of Christ and our life is not looking more and more like Jesus, the heart, like the eye, may very well be bad. Which is why in verse 35 he gives a warning. Which is where I've taken the title of the sermon. Take care, take care that you keep God's word. As you say in verse 35, therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. Be careful that you are not taking in the light of the Word and failing to walk in it. Be careful that the light of the Word has its full effect in your life. Take care to keep God's Word. If you're taking in the light and, it's not, and you're not allowing it to have its full effect in your life, you're just dark on the inside. You're keeping God's word, removing every darkness by its light. This is verse 36. You will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays, rays gives you light. And I'm saying this is biblical holiness. And it's not without a missional effect. Look with me at verse 33. He says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket. I take that in light of our context to mean that when you are lit up with the Word of God, if you are hearing it, but you're not keeping it, you're taking the light of His Word and you're putting it in a cellar or under a basket. You're hiding it. But if you keep the Word, you're putting it that lamp on a stand so that those who enter may see the light.
So, as our lives are being adjusted by the Word, they give testimony to the Word. When we take care to keep the Word, its light makes us light. And that makes us living and breathing and walking, uncompromised testimonies to the light of the gospel. Why? Because the backdrop of the world is dark. Let's hear Jesus say this, and then we'll put some apostolic concreteness to it. This is Jesus, Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And now this is Paul, Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, always obeyed, always kept the word. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now listen, listen. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life. It's the truth and the power and the integrity of the gospel is being communicated by the holiness of our lives. The death of missions is inauthenticity, hypocrisy, a hearing without keeping. So we need to take care to keep God's word because biblical holiness is missional holiness. Now, in closing, I just want to give five brief exhortations on how to prepare yourself to take care to keep God's word. So on a practical level, as you come to your devotionals, you open up the word, how do you take care to keep God's word? Number one, by considering whose word it is. Verse 28, Jesus, blessed rather are those who hear Whose word? The word of God. And keep it. So Jesus believes that the Bible is the word of God. And I want my children, I want my children, so Luke and Kate, I want them to obey my word and the word of my wife. But I know that sometimes our words can be hurtful and errant and contradictory, and sinful, and self-centered. And they're not always for the good of the child. It's not so with the word of our Father. His word is perfect. It is without error. It is perfectly true. It is righteous. It is holy. Every single line of Scripture, whether it commends you or whether it indicts you and calls for your repentance, is good for you. Every single line. So take care to keep the Word of God by understanding this Word is the Word of God and your Father if you're in Christ and it's good for you. You'll never go wrong by keeping His Word. It's amazing. Number two, not only by considering whose word it is, but by prizing, and having quotations, the word, that is the word incarnate, by prizing Jesus. We get this in verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, 
something greater than Solomon is here. This is a queen who has everything at her disposal and she leaves it all because she treasures the wisdom of Solomon. And Jesus is infinitely greater than Solomon. Why is that important? Because you will not take care to keep what you do not prize. We've already received an example of prizing the Word of Christ in Luke's Gospel in the person of Mary. Luke chapter 10. One page over in my Bible. You remember the story? As they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. A woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. And Martha was distracted because she didn't prize Christ. That was not the first priority in her life. To listen to Jesus. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to come and help me. And listen to what Jesus says. He says, the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but there's only one thing in all the world that is necessary. There are all kinds of good things to be doing and one of them is serving like you're doing. But there's only one thing that's necessary. And that's to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Prizing Christ is crucial to keeping the word of Christ. Number three, by a ready repentance, take care to keep God's word. We see repentance coming up in verse 32 of Luke 11. The men of Nineveh, there's an outcry against these people because of their wickedness. They're a wicked people. And God is gracious to them and literally has to drag his prophet over to Nineveh to preach to them. The men of Nineveh will rise up to judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So prizing Christ's words is one part of keeping. Repenting of the sin exposed is the other. Repentance, which we see in the men of Nineveh, is the grace by which we put off sin and replace it with its opposite in righteousness. It's not just putting it off, it's replacing it. If you're not replacing the sin that you put off, it's not repentance. This is Paul. Let the thief no longer steal, put it off, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Ephesians 4.28 Again, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. 429. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Put it off. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. If we would take care to keep God's word, we must have a ready repentance like that. A desire, as Christ puts it in the parable, to have no part dark. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, you will be wholly bright. Number four, take care to keep God's word by prayer. It's my great privilege last Sunday with our Bible study, uh, Christ Community Church Bible study to emphasize the priority of the Word in the Christian life and the life of what is right now a very embryonic Christ Community Church. And we spent our time in Psalm 100 
19, verses 129 to 136. And so as we were unfolding it, it came, it was very clear that the passion of the psalmist was keeping God's word. And then half of that portion of the psalm is devoted to prayer to God. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face to shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Our keeping is a dependent keeping if we would take care to keep God's word, we must be devoted to prayer. Number five, last thing. Take care to keep God's word by pursuing the effects of keeping God's word, holiness. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a great basketball player like Tanner Turley. I didn't write that down. I just ad-libbed that. Sorry. <clears throat> that pursuit drove my practice. So hundreds of hours in my driveway spent practicing free throws, shooting from the elbow, three-pointers, turnaround jays, right-handed layup, left-handed layup, right-handed dribble, left-handed dribble, hours. So the effects of all that practice were actually invigorating my practice. My aim was to be a great basketball player, and there are many aims and effects of keeping God's Word. We ought to aim at being the holiest person we can be. We ought to aim at the assurance that we receive of holiness, that we are children of God. We ought to aim at being a powerful witness to the world of the truth of the gospel of Christ. And above all, we ought to aim at radiating the glory of our Father who is in heaven. And if these are our highest aims and our greatest pursuits, if when we open the Bible, we have these in mind to practice, we will be invigorated to keep God's word. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray now that you would keep out everything that might hinder our keeping of it. We ask this for the glory of your name. Amen.